0: Thank you. Thank you, Grace. I told her to do that for me, actually. Um, (laughs) Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm really excited to be sharing my testimony with you today. Uh, My name is Allison, as you heard earlier. Um, I've been at Spark for about five years now. um, And somehow, I still haven't met everybody, which Grace over there would tell you it's because I'm shy. But it's also because I'm, oh, I'm also nice, which she forgot that part. Um, so if, if you wanna say hi to me, I would be happy to say hello, I'm just shy. Um, I will just jump into it. Um, so for my, my testimony today, I'll just start here. I've always struggled with fear. Uh, for, for a church kid who received Jesus as their savior, at a very young age, I actually had a lot of fears. I was terrified of rejection, of sinning, of disappointing others, and being wrong, um, and being on the wrong side of God. If you couldn't guess, I grew up in a conservative evangelical space. And a quick disclaimer here, I'm not here to drag the conservative evangelical church, but rather this is kind of a reflection of how I experienced and interpreted the principles as a small child up until adulthood. I was always told that God loved me, but God always seemed to expect an action in return. Jesus died for my sins, so I had to believe in him and live a good life. Otherwise, I'd go to hell. How terrifying, right? And what a crazy thing for a child to be told this or to be led to believe this, right? But good thing for me, because everything was simple in my mind. Everything was either good or bad, true or false. There was no gray area. Um, If you've ever seen those Jesus or hell in all caps signs, that was kind of like that mentality that I had started to believe. And basically, it was a religion that was built on fear. As a kid, I really internalized this sort of transactional religion, and God became merely just this temperamental power to be appeased. And people who considered themselves Christians, in my mind, were expected to uphold God's laws nearly perfectly. The rhetoric that I often heard around me sounded like, this is just an impersonation, I heard Chloe got pregnant outside of marriage. She must not have been a real Christian. Otherwise, why would she even do that? Does this sound familiar to anybody in the church? So contrary to what you might think, I actually thrived in this space for a really long time. It worked for me because I was secretly afraid of God. Let me explain. I was afraid to ask questions, afraid to doubt, and afraid to disappoint. So to blend in and to make everyone, including myself, feel better, I resorted to being the best Christian. And I was so good at it. And Patty can tell you this because she knew me when I was very small. (laughs) I was a youth leader. I was a church intern, I was a worship leader, I still am, um, and I was outgoing and so passionate about everything I did in the church. But I did it all because inside I was actually afraid that being myself wasn't good enough. In hindsight, my life was this sort of vicious cycle of fear, of control, of people pleasing, and then being afraid that I wasn't enough again. It was exhausting, as you can imagine, but it was the only way I knew how to function and survive in this religion. Things got even more complicated in 2017, 2018. I came out as bisexual. Big plot twist. Surprise, everybody. Up until then, I think everything was under my control. How could I be gay? It wasn't even in my vocabulary. I didn't even know queerness could affect Christians. What the heck? (laughs) I always thought that I could just control my sexuality like I had controlled everything else in my life. But to no one's surprise, that didn't work. I had always done the, th- the right things, and I was so dedicated to my faith. Why would God do this to me? Obviously, this threw a huge wrench into my life. No biggie. Uh, perfection and uh, transaction was the only way I knew how to practice my religion. But if I could no longer be who God and people wanted me to be, Sorry, I lost my place. But if I no longer wanted to, or no longer could be who people in God wanted me to be, then what did I have left? It felt like I had nothing. There was nothing left for me in a religion of a perfect God that expected self-denial and unconditional obedience. So I thought I was done with Jesus. Or more so, I thought Jesus was done with me, the worst of my fears. But, you know, I think that's the most amazing thing about Jesus and why I'm standing here today. I'll spare you all the details of how I got into this mindset because I only have a couple minutes, but I will say this. Jesus proves us wrong in all the right places in order to bring us back to his love, and I think I have a verse up here that I can show. Yes, so this verse, I'll share this with you now. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. So after several years of deconstruction, reconstruction, what do you want to, whatever you want to call it, and challenging my gut reactions, this verse has transformed me. For the first time in my life, Jesus is something, or someone who I, as a queer individual, can approach with love and not fear. Instead of running away from him, Jesus is now a place I come for rest when I am afraid. And even with nothing to give, I can trust in his love. So to recap, Allison, why Jesus? I follow Jesus because he is no longer one that actually demands anything from me. He is the one who invites me, yes, every part of me, to trust in his perfect love. He invites me to trust that even when I have questions, I have doubts, and when people tell me otherwise, that I can't be here, that I can first rest in his love and then face my day and the best part my favorite part is as i experience the perfect love of jesus i can now share that abundance of love with others and that's my why jesus thank you
1: so i have to follow that oh, my gosh. Hey, everybody. (laughs) You know, sometimes I I wish, maybe we could just end right there. Is that? Thank you, Allison. Uh, Well, Good evening, Spark. My name is uh, Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here at our congregation. Thank you so much for being with us. And I'd like to start by sharing some tough news. Uh, The father of our beloved friend and pastor, Omer Akhtar, passed away earlier this week. Omer spent the last few days back home in Chicago with family, and he'll be returning home today. Memorials are always bittersweet. It's a difficult time, and yet it's a chance to reconnect with loved ones. So I'd like for us to pray for Omer and his family right now. So if you could please pray with me. O Lord, come and take your place with the Attar family. Comfort them in their loss, hold them in their sorrow, and sustain them through their grief. Enfold them with all your love, Lord, that they may rest within your arms. Watch over their sleep and take their hands each morning as they face a new day. Find their broken hearts as one and bless their relationships. May they be united in their loss and also blessed with smiles and joy. Lead this precious family onwards to embrace life together and to hold on to the promise of heaven in this life and in the next. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And before I begin my sermon, I would be remiss of not acknowledging someone right now. As you may know, as you saw earlier, I have a three-month-old daughter, Isabella. And she has been a joy to watch grow up, and she has also been a handful. In the last few days, her cute baby cry has morphed into this little girl's shriek. And she's utilizing it early and often. The only reason I can be up here and share anything tonight is because of the tireless work and loving care of her mother, Stacy. She has always been supportive. She's always been supportive whenever I go through the sermon writing process, but this one has been particularly tough because someone in our house is pretty demanding. And Stacy has taken it all on to afford me the time and space to write. And through our conversations, she's also helped me develop this sermon. So whatever makes sense here is because of her. So Stacy, I love you, and I'm grateful for you. And with that, here we go. We're continuing with our series on the fruits of the Holy Spirit. We've already discussed love, joy, and peace, and today, we're focusing on what to me is the most difficult of all of them, patience. The title of this message is Patience, 808s and Heartbreak. If you're a fan of hip-hop music, you might recognize this as the name of Kanye West's fourth studio album uh, released in 2008. Now, Kanye West is famous, or infamous, for his views on many things. But, back in 2008, Kanye created this album, as a departure from hip hop into a more pop and R&B sound. The heartbreak that he mentions here comes from his songs examining suffering in his life, specifically the death of his mother and the breakup with his fiance. The 808 refers to the Roland TR-808, a drum machine utilized in the album songs. The 808 is a legendary machine used in songs by Phil Collins, Talking Heads, New Order, Whitney Houston, but it was key to the evolution of hip hop Utilized by Run DMC, LL Cool J, Public Enemy, and many others. One of its greatest uses, however, was in this song. Those percussive. Hand claps, the laser sounds, the cymbals, the bass hits, they all come from the 808. The music magazine Slate said that the 8-bar units produced by the 808 became veritable playgrounds for invention and creativity. Turn it up. Let's go. So, one more time. Not done yet. The 808 beats were created by a machine. So they were regular, consistent, controlled. It was the heartbeat of hip hop songs. And it set an expectation for the artist. They knew that whatever happened, there would be this regular, consistent aspect of the music that they could reliably build a song upon. And that's what we want from life, right? We want a regular, consistent rhythm upon which we can build regular aspects of our lives. But what happens when that beat changes in a way we didn't expect. Got it, got it. When the rhythm of life changes, when suffering befalls us, what happens to the expectations of life? How do we manage it? Do we grow in patience? You'll hurt, hurt, not Perth, rush. Crazy. Anyways, as a quick recap to our series, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, Galatians, to the church in the communities in Galatia, which is a region in modern Turkey. Paul visited and founded churches in this region, and other Christian teachers then followed and taught something in conflict to Paul's gospel. These teachers said that following the law of Moses was necessary in order to properly follow Jesus. We see in Paul's other letters and in the book of Acts, this was a constant point of contention in the churches that Paul founded, and he was pretty pointed about it. For example, in Galatians 5, he writes, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. It tell us how you really feel, Paul, right? Jeez. Now, Paul then reminds the community that they are free from keeping the letter of the law of Moses, including practices like circumcision, as they would fulfill the spirit of the law by following Jesus' call to love their neighbors as themselves. He then provides a list of the works of the flesh, such as idolatry, strife, divisions, and the like, and warns that they remain in danger of falling into these if they do not live within the guidance of the spirit. But as a counterpoint, he offers a list of the fruits of the spirit which will develop in their lives as they live in step with the Holy Spirit. Note that Paul uses two phrases, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Why didn't Paul say the works of the Spirit to make this comparison clear? I think it's to emphasize that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are not gifts to be given, but the products of work. To grow fruit requires planting and seeding, it requires watering, it requires tending, and it requires pruning. Fruits are the work of, uh, work, result of work over time, and that very much includes our topic for tonight, patience. Sometimes we think of patience as passivity, as waiting to react, or complacency. But the word translated here as patience, macrothumia, is used in several of Paul's letters and can be translated as endurance, expectancy, fortitude, slowness to avenge injury, long-suffering, forbearance, and clemency. These terms suggest an active posture, control within a certain circumstances, a proactive intentional delay of acting and responding. Patience could have been a supernatural endowment from God or an innate ability, but that's not how Paul's painting it. Patience. Needs to be planted, fostered, tended. So, how do you grow patience? Well, we see a process spelled out in the letter to the Romans, which is tribu- uh, traditionally attributed to Paul. In Romans chapter 5, the author attempts to frame suffering as a catalyst for growth. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And the Greek word for endurance here, hypomone, can also be translated as patience. So let's just swap out endurance with patience. So suffering produces patience, and patience produces character, and character produces hope. Sounds clean and simple, no? But to rejoice in suffering is some really tough sledding. To smile and hold a positive attitude when you're in pain is not expected of any of us. And sometimes followers of Jesus will even criticize those in pain for not being happier about it as though being upset in difficult circumstances is wrong. You know, if your faith was stronger, you would feel better about this. You would know that Jeremiah 29 says that God has a plan and purpose for your suffering. And you would know that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says God doesn't give you more than you can bear. Count it all joy, my friend. Count it all joy. Well, first of all, both of those verses I mentioned don't actually mean that. I'm not gonna get into that now, but they don't really mean that. And secondly, to find pleasure in pain is masochism, which is not God's calling for your life. So, as a Christian, you might also be missing something else. You'll be seeing, you've probably seen this before, this step-by-step process here. Uh, many times you're thinking, but of course, we all know this is true. Suffering produces patience, produces character, produces hope. Duh. But if you've never seen or heard this before, you're probably thinking, um, suffering doesn't lead to patience. In fact, throughout history, suffering takes you in the opposite direction. Suffering produces impatience with your circumstances, and impatience leads you to disillusionment, and disillusionment leads you to to hopelessness. That's what humanity is used to. So what's the difference between these two paths? Well, many Christians say that the difference is a relationship with Jesus. Jesus gives his followers the gift of the Holy Spirit so that the suffering experience magically takes down us down the patience route instead of down the disappointment route. Well, no. Remember that the fruits of the Spirit require work. They need to be planted, watered, tended, and pruned before we see them arise. So what does the relationship with Jesus provide in addition to access to the Holy Spirit? I think it provides new perspective. It provides us with a different set of expectations. And that's why I think the difference is here. In terms of this drumbeat metaphor I've been using, My life and my circumstances Fit my worldview And the expected rhythms of my life So I can learn to deal with these trials and tribulations as they come Because I'm, I'm taking the path down Romans 5 But oh, Turn up the bass <laughs> So this is what we would expect However When suffering enters this picture And changes the rhythm that I was just Getting accustomed to I can't make cuts or tails of this and I grow impatient with my circumstances, and it takes me down the other path, to hopelessness. How important are expectations in setting the tempo and dictating which path someone in pain will follow? They're massive. The context in which you set something can make you either grateful or resentful. One of my favorite stand-up bits, which while I will not recreate here, I thought about it, and then I thought, I shouldn't subject you guys to this, so uh, that's suffering. Um, but, <laughs> This bit is often how we complain about airline flight delays. It was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes, and then we get on the plane, and they make us sit there. On the runway, for 40 minutes, we had to sit there. We get so wrapped up in the 60-minute delay that we forget immediately afterwards that we're flying through the air. That's crazy. A trip to New York, covers 2,700 miles. If you were to walk without stopping once, it takes 38 days. If you were to take a train with scheduled stops, it would take about two and a half days. By car, without stopping for gas or food, you you probably cut about 20 hours off of that train trip, almost two days of travel. By plane to get from New York to LA, 2,700 miles, it takes six hours with zero effort on our part. And so we're annoyed by a one-hour delay because our expectations are so transfixed. Suffering goes from two months of hiking across a continent to seven hours of sitting still because we're accustomed to comfort. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. has many famous quotes, such as, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Or, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all directly. I love those two quotes. But my favorite one of all from Martin Luther King Jr. is this one. I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end or purpose of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. Living with that expectation, that the purpose of life is not to be happy, frees us from so much. It allows us to let go of pursuits of something that's fleeting and temporary, it allows us to appreciate when life is happy because it's a gift that we've received rather than a reward that we work towards. It allows us to be patient when life is not happy. And it gives us hope that though we may not experience happiness, our suffering may enable other, ones, other loved ones to. Let's look at a few figures from the Bible for whom patience in the face of suffering was a struggle. And let's start with the figure whose long-suffering birthed the idiom, the patience of Job. In the first chapter of Job, the character Job rejoices in all that he has, and then God strips it away. His possessions are stolen and destroyed, and his children are killed. He experiences suffering to the extreme. In the last book, last chapter of the book, God grants him new possessions and a new family, and Job rejoices again. And in between, we have 36 chapters debating the nature of God's relationship with man, with God's, Job's patience being challenged by his friends. And then there are four chapters at the end where God states his perspective. And through this, you can see uh, Job's patience being created, being born out of the suffering. He's lost everything, and his friends are just turning the knife with their words. Two of his friends state this expectation. Suffering happens to the wicked. We know this. So therefore, Job, you've done something to deserve this. And this shocks Job. He disagrees wholeheartedly, and he sees his suffering as unjust. He's, in dis- he's disappointed in God's choice to allow him to suffer, but then when God steps up, he backpedals in the face of God's rhetorical questions. Job has grown more patient with the circumstances and the uncertainty of why it all happened. He never actually learns the reason for his suffering, but he's content to bear it. Now, you can take the story of Job as literal history or as a fictional allegory, but there are two perspectives that I think win out here. The first is stated by Job at the beginning. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, no one and nothing was mine to begin with. I shall be content with what I had and what I lost, because none of it belonged to me. It was all God's to give and take away. The second perspective is stated by God towards the end. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? In other words, is any human being, including you, Job, capable of understanding God in all of his power, so much so that the person can judge God and judge God's decision-making? Now, from this, you can take quite a bleak perspective. Suffering is a natural state of man, and God's never to be questioned about his existence. But I think a better expectation for us to draw from this is suffering is not restricted to the wicked. All people, regardless of their behavior, will suffer to some degree. And it always, won't always make sense why. Now, arms with that expectation, rather than suffering only happens to the wicked, we can progress down the other path to patience. Oh, the reasons for this pain may never make sense to me but I can accept the fact that I don't understand it or think I'm undeserving. I can let go of that. The only way to grow patience, grow patience is by undergoing painful periods and learning from them. Let's take a look at another set of figures in the Bible for whom patience is a struggle. The Pharisees in the book of John. Now, I think that the Pharisees get a bad rap in general. So often we paint them as evil antagonists to Jesus, when Jesus seems to consider them more as misguided colleagues, fellow teachers to be held accountable for their errors. We won't get into that now, but we will take a look at the story of the blind man in the Gospel of John chapter 9. In Jerusalem, Jesus and his his disciples encounter a blind man, and his disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The common expectation in the culture at the time was suffering is punishment from God, and suffering only happens to the wicked. And that's the expectation that the disciples disciples held as well. However, Jesus spun it, saying, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, God had a purpose for this particular illness, which was to give Jesus a person to heal and a moment for Jesus to teach about his own authority. The disciples and the now formerly blind man are willing to accept this and change their expectations. Suffering isn't just for the wicked. The Pharisees, however, are not. When they encounter the formerly blind man now healed, it hits against their expectations. They believe the blind man to be, quote, steeped in sin at birth. That justifies his blindness. Now that the man can see and claims Jesus healed him, they are impatient and blinded to the truth. Their expectations for how the world works, suffering only happens for the wicked, has been broken. Moreover, their expectations of God are challenged. Someone who violates the Sabbath could not be sent by God. And that's when Jesus healed this man. The Pharisees are unwilling to wait and even consider the evidence before them, and they don't delay their actions. They're being impatient, and that takes them down the other path to disillusionment and hopelessness. And they begin to think, unless we deal with this Jesus, he will lead the people astray, and the uneasy peace with our Roman occupiers will end. We need to get rid of him. Let's pick one more figure in the Bible. Let's say God. How does God deal with his suffering? Wait. Suffering? God doesn't suffer. Outside of a fully divine and fully human Jesus on the cross, it's hard to imagine an omnipotent and omniscient God capable of suffering, because that would suggest a flaw in a perfect God. So, to alleviate ourselves of that, let's Consider another translation of the word for suffering, philipsis. It can also be translated as pressure or distress. Does God feel distress in the Bible? Yes. It is strange for us to anthropomorphize God, but perhaps God's emotions appear so human in the Bible because our emotions are reflections of His. We are made in God's image, and so perhaps we can feel as God feels. And as much as we praise logic and pragmatic thinking, Spock, having emotions is not a flaw. There are many examples in scripture where God feels distress because of what his beloved Israel or specific individuals have chosen to do. The most obvious are in the narratives of the prophets. In Exodus, Numbers, in Deuteronomy, Moses is constantly needling, or needing to talk God down from obliterating the Israelites. God speaks of winning the hearts of the Israelites, that they will choose to love him in response, but they don't. And they fail to meet his expectations for love of God and neighbor, and God grows impatient. God becomes disillusioned and hopeless. After the golden calf episode in Exodus 32, God says, the Israelites are too stubborn to be my people. They cannot give up their old ways and love me as I am. Moses, let me destroy them. And we'll restart my plan to bless the world through you." And what does Moses do? Wait, what about the expectations you set for the Egyptians? They think that you've rescued Israel, but then you destroy Israel? And what about the expectations of the forefathers? You promised to make them a a great nation of them and give them a land of their own. Would you break that promise? So God relents. God resets, Moses resets God's expectations for the people. God, they are going to screw up again and again. They're going to break your heart. They're going to cause you distress. And with each episode, you're going to have to learn to be patient with them and withhold punishment out of your love for them and to uphold your own integrity. And over time, in many periods of distress, God has grown so much patience and such a hope for the people of Israel, which is conveyed again by the prophets. We see another moment of distress for God in the book of Hosea. The northern kingdom has abandoned God as king and against God's wishes has made trees with the Assyrian empire to protect itself. So in chapter 9, God says, Rejoice not, Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the prostitute for seeking your God. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. Once again, the people of Israel have turned away from God and broken his expectations for them, for them. And in his distress, God is ready to give up on them again. But then a few chapters later, God changes his mind after realizing he is God. And he resets his own expectations. Through Israel, though Israel breaks their promises, God will not break his. How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim which is a synonym for Israel. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Once again, God feels impatience because of the distress Israel puts him through. But when God manages his own expectations and remember who he is, God is then able to put that distress in perspective, and he's grown in patience once again. So application. How can we turn our own periods of suffering towards patience and away from impatience? Let's consider some examples and start small. Uh, Let's start with a family member. Let's call her Mary. Here's the suffering. We have company over, and we're in a rhythm, just getting dinner ready, and we're preparing the table. And then here comes Mary, and she sits down. She starts talking with our guests. She's completely oblivious to all the work that needs to get done. She's completely changed the tone of everything. Oh, the Now we could paint this expectation. Mary never helps with any of the housework. She's always being social, and she's expecting things to just get done. I always have to cover for her, do her dirty work, and I never get to do anything. This takes us down the path of impatience, to disillusionment, and we lash out. We say, Jesus, tell her to come and help me. That's potentially embarrassing for Mary, and that could damage the relationship. You called me out in front of Jesus? Or we could paint this expectation. Mary loves spending time and talking with people. It brings her such joy that she forgets all about all the things that need to get done and take place behind the scenes. That expectation leads to patience. That's who Mary is. Patience is a choice to hold our tongue and try to understand and to appreciate Mary for being so social and loving. Yeah, we're going to get frustrated with Mary, and an angrier group might leave our mouths from time to time. But over time, we'll learn to be patient with Mary, and that builds our character overall, and that leads to hope that whenever guests come to our home, they'll feel well-loved by both Mary and us. Let's try another example. We have a friend. Let's call him Charles. Now, Charles wears his heart on his sleeve. He gets super excited with projects and the possibilities, and he goes charging into things with joy. We have some really great conversations with Charles. It went away. But then, Charles starts talking about the news of the day. And all of a sudden, things get very charged, very personal, very pointed. Charles is so polarized politically and socially, it frays our relationship with him. Now, we could paint this expectation. Charles... Whoa. Charles is nuts! His views are crazy. He's completely illogical. That takes us down the other path to impatience and to disillusionment. He's never going to understand the truth of things. Why do we even bother with this relationship? It's hopeless. Or we could paint this expectation. Charles and I have very different views of the world based on our backgrounds and our experiences. We're rarely going to agree on anything, and I may never understand him. But we have enough in common, and I love him enough that I want our relationship to last." That expectation leads to patience in those charged moments. Oh, we're going to forget, and we're going to get heated. But over time, we'll grow to actively wait to respond. And that builds our character and the hope that despite our differences, Charles and I can be there for each other. Final example, we have a circumstance. In our country, police brutality towards people of color is a constant. And in some cases, the incidents are so brutal that they capture the attention of the nation. Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tyree Nichols. It is completely unjust. Now, we could paint this expectation. This has to stop right now. No more victims, no more perpetrators, by any means necessary. We need laws, we need reform, we need to dismantle the system right now. And that expectation, while justified, won't be met in our current social climate. And that takes us down to the path of impatience. What we want, we're not going to get, no matter how much we push and push and push. That impatience accumulates, and that leads to disillusionment and hopelessness. And we've heard and seen people who have leapt onto the Black Lives Matter bandwagon, pushed for immediate change, and then subsequently fell off the bandwagon because immediate change didn't happen, and because they became disillusioned and plain tired from the effort. There's another expectation we could take. This has to stop right now, but this requires more than just new laws and policies and people in power. This requires a change in culture. This requires a change in system. Those can't happen in a short period. Now, with that expectation, we head down the path to patience or long-suffering. Again, this is not complacency or surrender that we're taking part in. This is an active waiting for the right pieces to fall into place, and often working to put those pieces into place ourselves. That builds character, and that leads to hope. It doesn't mitigate the suffering, but it does give purpose to it. Look at what drives African-American culture and Jewish culture and all cultures that have survived and thrived because of long-suffering patience, grown over time, passed down to generations. Look at the effective civil rights leaders, subizen B. Anthony, Mohandas Gandhi, MLK, Rosa Parks, Desmond Tutu, Angela Davis, Harvey Milk. All of them were frustrated and grieved by the individual tragedies that they saw and the pace, the slow pace of change. And they pushed sometimes, and they waited to push other times, because they had learned from their predecessors that changing systems and cultures, changing societies, takes work over time. As MLK said, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. That is hope, born of patience earned through suffering across time and across generations. There's so much more to say about patience, but let me end with these expectations that could help us grow patience when the changing rhythms of life throw us for loop. Number one, there's often no way around suffering. You can delay it, you can try to avoid it, but often the only way past suffering is through it. But you will not be alone, for the Good Shepherd is with you, walking alongside you through the valley of the shadow of death, with the rod and the staff that give us courage. And the people you have assembled around you during this walk are there as well. They could be at your church, they could be your loved ones, they could be your neighbors, they could be anybody. There are people who will walk alongside you and root for you and carry your burdens alongside you. And finally, grief is the price of loving someone. Loving someone leaves you, leaves you vulnerable to them disappointing you, hurting you, and leaving you heartbroken. Yes, sometimes we carry this to the extreme we allow people to use and abuse us. That's not God's plan. But if you want a life filled with hope, if you want to be a person of character, if you want to experience patience, then suffering has to be tempered with this expectation. Loving even the most wonderful person in the world still means risking a broken heart. But it can be worth it. Now, Jesus said to his followers, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What Jesus just said is hope born of character, born of patience, born of suffering. Jesus calls us to take part in his work of building love, joy, peace, and patience in ourselves and in others. And that experience, we can experience that unity in the Lord's table. For in the night that he was betrayed, in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.